welcome to the Activist Insight podcast, which takes you through the top shareholder activism stories as told by Activist Insight Monthly. I'm Kieran Paul, your host, and this month we're asking, can an ex-executive repeat one of last year's signature activist campaigns at Japan's Sakishui House? What's next for London-based activist Bluebell Partners? Who is right in a dispute over the valuation of China's luck in coffee? But first, we will be discussing our cover story on activism in the energy industry with senior financial journalist Jason Booth, as well as hearing from Ben Dell, who is a managing partner of activist Kimmeridge Energy Management. So let's start with Jason. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. This podcast comes at a dramatic moment in the energy industry, which has been hit hard by falling oil prices and the wider market correction associated with the COVID-19 pandemic. So how much activism is going to take place, do you think, in the industry this year? If the last few weeks have been any indicator, it could actually be quite, quite active. Whilst prices are down dramatically and most people are sitting around and wondering quite what's going to happen, you have seen some of the big name activists get into energy stocks and start to be a little more active simply because there seem to be opportunities, especially after the downturn that maybe weren't there before. It could be a while till we actually see them demand changes at these companies, but we are certainly seeing them taking stakes. And what we are doing to see what might be happening is we've been looking back at some of the previous downturns, particularly in 2014 and 15, when oil prices fell about 60%. We saw quite a sharp shift in the style of activism that took place at that time. And we are expecting to see things maybe play out similarly over the next six months to a year into 2021. And then what kind of companies, if there are any, that are particularly vulnerable? Exploration and production companies, the companies that make a living kind of looking for oil in the ground and bringing it up, they uh, seem to us to be the most attractive to activists. If you look back at 2015, when oil prices approached the $30 barrel level, that was a time when you, you saw the number of ENP companies being targeted by activists more than double. These would include, say, Occidental Petroleum, who we've all currently seen quite a lot of activity around. Uh, Laredo Petroleum, EQT, Gulfport. These are all companies that are currently looking at activist interest, and uh, we expect to see more of it. One of the interesting things about EMP companies is that they actually hold proven oil assets that are already currently in the ground. So those aren't going to go away. So uh, we expect to see a lot of investors buying into these companies and sort of sitting on them in the expectation that oil prices will rise and increasing the value of their investments. And once that takes place, then they can uh, start to be more active with these companies and seeing if they can generate more uh, returns, improve their performance, or maybe sell off some of that assets, which will be a lot more valuable than they were when the activists first took stake. Another area that we could see uh, increased interest is integrated oil and energy companies, which may produce the oil, um, refining, distribution, in some cases having retail operations such as gas stations. These are companies that have a broad range of assets that could be broken up and have been quite popular in the past. For example, Elliott Management at Marathon uh, has been taking this approach Whereas that has been put on hold because of the current issues with coronavirus, that particular deal is expected to kind of ramp up later and we're likely to see more of these sort of things going on in the future. Who are then the most prominent activists in this sector? And are they they likely to stay engaged? 
Well, this is an industry where knowledge is very important, having the connections and the understanding, because it's such a broad field. There are literally thousands of potential targets, hundreds of significant ones. As a result, some of the companies that we expect to see continue operating are the ones that have, have been there. I mean, the names obviously that come to mind are um, Icon, who has been um, very active even during the downturn. As he said himself, he quadrupled down on Occidental. Shortly after that, he took a significant stake in a refining company called Delic, which he's looking at possibly integrating with one of his existing portfolio companies. Elliott Management, who I've already mentioned, has been a big player in this industry, and we expect to see more of them. Both those funds have deep pockets. In the case of Icon, he has sort of permanent capital in the form of his publicly traded holding company, Icon Enterprises. So they uh, have been less hurt by the current downturn and, and have money that they can draw on to make new investments. Another name that comes to mind is Jana Partners, who has over the years been very active in the uh, oil and gas space. According to our figures, they made five activist campaigns against the oil and gas sector over the last say, five years. They were up, according to our records, 52% in 2019, their funds. So they also have money to use if they wish to do so. Another is Kimmeridge Energy, who uh, we know has uh, launched a fund and is looking around at the energy space to make more investments. Either the question will be, what about some of the smaller funds? There have been a number of funds out there that have been very focused on oil and gas and ran campaigns in the last few years in the sector, some of which were successful, but have only resulted in sharp losses since then. We're still waiting to see how some of these smaller players, you know, weather the current downturn and which ones of them will actually survive to fight another day. So that'd be interesting to watch over the next few months. And what kind of activism were you seeing before the crash? And what kinds are likely, do you think, to follow in a lower price environment? Well, as I said, we've been looking at the downturn in 2014 to 16, when oil prices were down about 60%. Whereas, obviously, the economic situation wasn't quite so uncertain as it is today, we are expecting to see some of the same trends play out in the next few months that we saw then. Uh, one of the most clear changes that took place was the reduction in what we call balance sheet activism, such as demanding buybacks or special dividends. Before the downturn, that was quite a popular demand for activists, both before 2014 and currently. Uh, last year and the year before, we saw quite a few demands for the return of capital. In the last downturn, we saw basically those sort of demands stop for a year. Uh, in 2016, I believe it was, there were no such demands for balance sheet activism as you know, there was a lot of uncertainty. A lot of these companies didn't have the money or there was a lot of questions about whether you know, they would survive and just whether they needed to retain their capital in order to reinvest in the business and keep themselves going and pay employees, for example. And we're already seeing a lot of concerns in this area now. I mean, we're seeing some activists come out and uh, say that companies should not be buying back stocks or paying dividends. That's an issue being raised by others, uh, whether it's in politics or, or in the business world. So we do expect to see uh, that sort of activism slow dramatically. Uh, on the other hand, we do expect to see uh, increasing demand for board seats. Between 2015 and 16, after the last downturn, the demands for board representation doubled. Basically, with the idea is that changes were going to have to be made. And the best way to do that was for an activist to get representation in the boardroom so they could improve governance and uh, influence management to make the sort of changes they felt were necessary. So we expect to see more of that over the next few months. 
And finally, how significant a role will M&A play in this industry during the 2021 proxy season? Uh, we expect, uh, as far as mergers and acquisitions, we expect it to slow for the time being, assuming the oil prices begin to rise. And that's not an assumption we make easily at this point, because it's really hard to tell, and it depends on a lot of economic and government political issues. But the expectation is that oil prices will pick up. And once they do, we'll likely see more mergers and acquisitions activity. Again, looking back at the last downturn, M&A activity picked up sharply in 2017 when oil prices moved from a low of around $30 to above 50 and continued to increase. And in 2019, M&A-related demands were the second most common demand by activists to energy companies as they looked for them to basically to capitalize on the, on the gains in their share prices and to grow an economy of scale and, and basically prepare themselves for what they saw was a, uh, for a future downturns, which we have subsequently seen. Now, we've already seen sort of movement in that direction, even though it is early in the game. I mean, obviously, Icon has already been agitating in this area at Occidental, where he uh, increased his stake quite sharply. I mean, he said uh, his expectation is that oil prices will rise. And when that happens, there's going to be an increase in consolidation in the sector. And so the sector that is, is called most sources is, is very much in need of consolidation. There's a lot of players. There's a lot of debt out there. There's a lot of uncertainty about the future of some of these companies. So you will likely see a, a demand for companies to start pairing up or, or acquiring each other. And, and the activists will likely play a big part in that. Likewise, going back to Icon with Delek, uh, his most recent investment, I mean, he's talked about teaming it up with his existing companies, CVR Energy in particular, he mentioned. So we expect to see more of that over the next, you know, maybe starting about six months and then in 2021 and beyond. And the industry itself seems to be anticipating this. I mean, one thing we have seen kind of a, across the, the business world in the last uh, few weeks is an increase in the implementation of shareholder rights plans or poison pills. That are designed to ward off unwanted acquirers when prices are depressed. Now, this, this was a uh, shareholder rights plans were first developed in the 1980s to in a reaction to hostile takeover bids, but have become quite popular as a way to ward off shareholder activists who might come along and take a large or even a controlling stake and then try to uh, buy out a company or have it merge with somebody else. But we've seen quite a few companies resort to these pills, which are very unpopular with many shareholders and are frowned upon by proxy advisory firms as being detrimental to shareholder value. And we've seen out of the ones that we've been tracking, the largest number of them have been in the oil and gas sector. Uh, we've seen Williams put one in place, Occidental obviously did, and even Delic, which has been a target by Carl Icahn. You know, while these poison pills may slow M&A activity, they certainly won't stop it. It's because most of them are relatively short term. And if enough shareholders are against them, they, they could be overturned. So basically, in the next few months, we're likely to see mergers and acquisitions start to pick up. Now we'll hear from Ben Dell, a managing partner of Kimmeridge. Welcome to the show, Ben. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Earlier this year, you laid out a new business model for the U.S. exploration and production sector, also known as the E&P sector. So what had gone wrong and how serious do you think is the problem? I think what's fundamentally gone wrong with the E&P sector is a focus on growth over profitability. Over the last 10 years, the industry has on average grown around 9.5%, but it's generated essentially no return on capital employed. 
At the same time, the industry has levered itself up by taking on additional debt. And as a result, as we've come into this downturn and this downswing, it's been horribly exposed as being over leveraged with too high a cost structures to survive these types of commodity price environments. And of course, oil prices have since slumped thanks to Saudi Arabia threatening to flood the market. Do you think there is still value to be salvaged in equities? I think when you look at the sector, we've obviously seen Saudi and Russia go into this all-out price war, but we're also seeing the impact of COVID reduce oil demand by nearly 25 million barrels per day in this month. And that's going to have a material impact, not just in the near term, but as we go through the remainder of this year and potentially into 2021. When you look at the U.S. industry, our estimate currently is 10 to 15 percent of production needs to disappear from the U.S. industry. So somewhere close to one and a half to two million barrels a day of supply. What that is invariably going to mean is a number of EMP companies also disappear and go bankrupt or Chapter 11 or get consolidated through additional M&A. So I think when you look at the U.S. EMP sector, you're really going to divide the space into survivors and those that don't survive. When you look at the survivors, their characteristics are scale, lower cost structure, higher quality assets, and essentially better balance sheets. When you look at those that are going to go bankrupt, they're companies who are often in fringe acreage with marginal wells who have consistently outspent cash flow, levered up the balance sheet, and their SG&A is unrealistic given the capital structure and the assets that they currently own. So then how exactly can companies then re-establish themselves as investable? Well, our view is that the EMP industry needs to take on the mantra of tobacco or refining, which is essentially to understand that the EMP industry is not a growth industry. Whether you believe in the next five years, 10 years or 20 years, it's conceivable that oil demand is going to peak. The reality is if oil demand is going to peak, then ultimately these companies should not be trying to grow 10% every year. What they should focus on is generating a return on capital employed above their cost of capital, And what they should also focus on is returning cash to shareholders. We've laid out a plan where we believe for companies to be investable, they have to return 100% of the enterprise value over a 10-year period. Essentially, what that means for an investor is you're going to get all your money back. And then in 10 years' time, if there's option value on the asset, on the commodity, on the long-term outlook for oil demand, you're going to get paid. We think that'll bring bring generalists back into the sector. And we've seen that playbook work in both the tobacco space and the refining space, where the stocks have performed well, even into flat and declining overall models. In your white paper, you emphasise that environmental, social and governance improvements, i.e. ESG, can go hand in hand with cost reductions. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, well, I think if you break the ESG down and you start with the G, the EMP industry has some of the worst governance of any sector. Management teams have virtually no alignment with share price performance. We've seen that over the last three years. A number of EMP CEOs have been paid up every year, $12 million a year, irrespective of their share price performance. The boards are compensated in cash, so they have no alignment with shareholders either. And while we've seen some incremental moves, At the end of the day, what we're seeing is management teams, C-suites, and boards continue to get paid as investors suffer. So from a governance standpoint, this industry has been horrible. When you look at the environmental side, one of the arguments we've made is the most effective E that you can add is stopping companies drilling wells that don't make money. Not only are they putting incremental supply on the market that we don't need, but in many cases, the excess gas that's not required is being fled. 
you see this particularly in the back end and particularly in the Permian. If the EMP industry only focused on drilling profitable wells, then what you would actually see is the amount of emissions go down, the flaring go down, the amount of production get moderated. You'd also see the amount of water, both fresh water being used for frack and disposal water that's coming out of the wells get reduced as well. So at a very high level, we said, look, the basic scenario here is if you only drill wells that make economic sense, you will lower your production, lower your emissions, lower your flaring, lower your water usage. We genuinely believe on top of that, that EMP industries have to embrace ESG at a wider scale, looking at the 10-year outlook and saying, we are going to reduce our emissions, we are going to reduce our CO2, we are going to look at gas capture technologies, et cetera. But first and foremost, it's about getting better governance, getting better alignment, getting drilling profitable wells and reducing your emissions because you're producing less. And Kimridge is known for switching between direct ownership of assets and public equities. So what plans do you have for future activism? I can't speak about specific names or plans that we have, but our philosophy at Kimridge is very simple. We want to own the highest quality assets, those at the front end of the North American cost curve, they're going to survive through down environments like this at the lowest possible entry cost. As you mentioned, our core business has historically been leasing positions, building acreage positions, drilling our own wells. And we continue to do that. We continue to be an operator of assets. On the other hand, we've also looked at the public equities where there's been an opportunity to own assets and take control of assets where we think we can add value. I suspect given the dislocations in the public equity market, we will continue to be very active. There are clearly a large amount of EMPs that need to structurally change and to embrace a new business model. And ultimately, the only way that will happen is if shareholders become actively engaged in changing these behaviours. And finally, what do you think the biggest challenge is to implementing this new business model? I think the biggest challenge is people and compensation. At the end of the day, these EMP C-suites have been compensated year in, year out without delivering any performance. The boards have facilitated that. And in many cases, the boards are friends of the CEO and friends of the C-suite and get other recommendations to be on board suites. The other challenge we have in this space is that we have a large amount of passive index ownership through the Black Rocks, the Vanguards, the State Streets and the Dimensionals. And at the end of the day, those companies and some of the smaller EMPs own almost 30 to 40% of the outstanding shares. And they actually also have to actively engage and focus on the ESG and drive these companies to change. So I would say the two biggest problems you have is an ingrained management team that will fight hard to protect their livelihood because it's been a very good job for them to have irrespective of performance. And the amount of passive ownership, which has historically sided with management teams in their voting strategies. Thank you for joining us, Ben. Activism in the energy sector is the focus of the April 2020 issue of Activist Insight Monthly, which is now available for subscribers to download. And now for some of the other stories in this month's issue. Marco Tarico and Giuseppe Bivona have advised top activists such as Elliott Management and Jana Partners for five years, but the duo decided recently to launch their own activist fund along with former luxury executive Francesco Trapani. Bluebell Capital Partners, as the fund is named, will chiefly engage in long activism by adopting a private equity approach to public markets. Although it will not shy away from taking short positions opportunistically, Marco Tarico tells Activist Insight Monthly. The fund's portfolio will consist of around 12 to 15 stocks at any given time in the mid and large cap European market, 
in industries where it has expertise, namely luxury, consumer, business services and industrials. Bluebell has already launched five activist campaigns and four of them are public. The biggest success so far was at fashion house Hugo Boss, whose CEO, Mark Langer, resigned shortly after Tarico described him as unsuitable to lead the company in an interview with Activist Insight Online. Two years after he retired, former Sikishwi House Chairman Izumi Wada is leading a dissident group attempting to take control of the company's board. He and his associates nominated 11 directors for election to disrupt what he describes as a culture of silence at the company. Former Shikishwi House Chairman Izumi Wada is leading a dissident group attempting to take control of the company's board. Wada ran the firm for 20 years but claims he was forced to retire in 2018 after an independent investigation found current chairman Tishinori Abe responsible for a $51 million fraud loss from a shady land transaction and called for his dismissal. Wada recognised he was outvoted and bowed out. Wada claims he has since become aware of the lack of good corporate governance policies in Japan and wants to lead a crusade for change. His group of dissidents say that if they get into the boardroom, they will introduce improvements and may even go for a duo listing on the New York Stock Exchange. China's luck in coffee has two short funds betting against it and a notable short-term long investor come into its defence after an anonymous short report claimed that the fast-growing beverage chain had evolved into a fraud and was a fundamentally broken business. Muddy Waters Research announced a short position on January the 31st, calling the anonymous report credible. But on the same day, Citroen Research, typically a short seller, tweeted that it believed the anonymous report was short on accuracy. J Capital Research issued a seven-page short report 12 days later, saying that it disagreed with Citroen and predicted significant downside for the stock. Worries about COVID-19 fallout have added to the debate. Luckin has stated that evidence provided in the anonymous report is based on flawed assumptions and inaccurate misleading analysis. But whoever is right, the situation exemplifies the challenges of investing in China and the opportunity it presents for short sellers. All that and more is in the latest issue of Activist Insight Monthly. You can subscribe by emailing subscriptions at activistinsight.com. That's all for this episode of the Activist Insight podcast. For those interested in the impact of COVID-19 on shareholder activism, we recently recorded a special edition of the podcast where our senior reporters discussed the topic. You can find the episode on your preferred podcast subscription platform or activistinsight.com forward slash resources forward slash podcast. For comments or questions about the podcast, or if you want something discussed on a future edition, please email press at activistinsight.com. Please do rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you are using to help others access our reporting. I'm Kieran Paul. Thanks for listening.